Good morning. Welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the, of the Council. Uh, we are delighted today uh, to host you for the first installment of our America's Role in the World Presidential Candidate Speaker Series. Uh, this morning, we're joined by Senator Lindsey Graham, our inaugural speaker, to discuss how the United States should approach the national security uh, challenges of the present and the future. Uh, in announcing his bid for the White House, Senator Graham asserted, the world is exploding in terror and violence. The more consistent message he's had over time is that we're an inflection point of history where we just have to get more thoughtful and more strategic about U.S. engagement in the world, and that is certainly the message of the Atlantic Council. We've likened this period of time to 1919, 1945, 1989, where if we don't rise together with our uh, friends and allies around the world, then less benevolent actors or even chaos can fill the void, uh, witness Ukraine, witness Syria. Uh, in this context, it's imperative that the Atlantic Council articulate and execute a strategic foreign policy of engagement in the international community. Our view is that the U.S. must be agile, resilient, transparent, transparent, and assertive. But above all, U.S. leaders must prioritize a new level of strategic thinking above the ad hoc crisis response that has dominated so much of America's behavior over the last several decades. One can debate a lot about what this actually means in execution, but that's what we need, a calm, measured, debate where all sides uh, of the aisle, all voices, can come together and figure out what's most in America's interest. The Atlantic Council's work is predicated on the idea that America, with its global friends and allies, must have a plan for the world we want to build and must execute that plan with deliberation and foresight. This is a particularly difficult task in a complex and rapidly changing world where short-term events often overtake long-term planning. That's why the Atlantic Council in March launched a strategy initiative hosted in our Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security to promote a more substantive and constructive public dialogue. This is especially important as we enter the 2016 presidential election campaign. Foreign policy is already playing a prominent role in the early stages of the campaign, and we expect it to continue to do so in the weeks and months to come. What we hope is not to have so much heat in the debate, but to really have a discussion where all sides come together and really find our way to the right policy. We believe that frank, in-depth discussions of America's role in the world and American global strategy are essential. To that end, the Atlantic Council is inviting all presidential candidates to speak publicly about U.S. foreign policy and national security with an emphasis on long-term vision and strategy. We're a bipartisan organization, and we have uh, made the Atlantic Council's experts and staff available to all the candidate staffs and to all the candidates for private meetings and for these sorts of public sessions. Uh, that said, it is, in my view, entirely appropriate that Senator Graham is here to kick off the series. Um, we've known each other for many years. Uh, I profited from your uh, advice, from your ideas, uh, when I was at the Wall Street Journal and have done so since in this position, very often on long plane rides to the Munich Security Conference in, uh, in Germany. Uh, this is also one of the candidates who's done the most thinking and work over the years on foreign policy issues, so this is not a new set of issues to Senator Graham by any means. But I'll leave the introduction to our board member, executive committee member of our board, Paula Dobriansky. 
she's one of the Atlantic Council's most dedicated and active board directors, and as I said, a member of our executive committee. She's a senior fellow with the Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard University's JFK Belfer Center for uh, Science and International Affairs. From 2001-2009, she served as Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs, and among her many accomplishments, she established and led the U.S.-India, U.S.-China, and U.S.-Brazil Global Issues Forum. So Paula, thanks for everything you do. The podium's yours. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Fred, for the introduction. I'm very delighted to be here and really glad that all of you are here this morning. Fred defined very briefly that today's international security landscape is beset with countless crises, including ISIS's reign of terror in the Middle East, Iran's quest for a nuclear weapon, Russia's aggression in Ukraine, and other conflicts emerging across the globe that together pose a real threat to global security, no less America's own national security interests. So a re-examination of the U.S. role in the world today is quite warranted. Now I want to mention significantly as we go into the presidential, U.S. presidential elections of 2016, Americans have been polled on what matters most to them. Economy has been rated number one, but the second issue is national security. In previous elections, this wasn't the case. So we are very excited, indeed, to have Senator Lindsey Graham here today to launch our presidential speaker series on America's role in the world as part of the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center's strategy initiative. And as Fred indicated, the series will offer a platform for all presidential candidates to come and to share their vision and their goals. Now, Senator Graham, when he appeared in May and announced infor informally his candidacy on CBS this morning and was asked, what's the reason you're ru running? He indicated that, quote, the world is falling apart. So Senator Graham was raised in Central South America, South Carolina, excuse me. <laughs> Central South Carolina, sorry, a slip. A graduate of the University of South Carolina. Uh, uh, exactly. Well, I got, a, I got a rise from the audience here. He was raised, let me say that again, in Central South Carolina, a graduate of the University of South Carolina, where he received a BA in psychology and also a JD from the University of South Carolina School of Law. He joined the Air Force as a first as a member of the Judge Advocate General Corps, and then he became part of South Carolina's Air National Guard, and then as part of the Air Force Reserves. You just retired, in fact, from the uh, Air Force with the rank of Colonel after 33 years of service. From 1995 to 2003, he served in the U.S. House of Representatives as the Congressman from South Carolina's 3rd Congressional District. And also, then, from 2003 to the present, he has represented South Carolina in the Senate. Senator Graham is well known domestically and internationally as a leader on U.S. national security issues and also defense. He has been an outspoken, compelling, and articulate advocate for a strong defense 
and for U.S. leadership in international affairs. He serves on both the Senate Armed Services Committee and as chair of the Senate State Foreign Ops and Related uh, Programs Subcommittee. So he sits at the nexus of what constitutes hard power and soft power in Congress. We are very honored that he chose the Atlantic Council to deliver his first major foreign policy speech as a candidate for President of the United States. But I also want to mention, Senator, that we are doubly grateful that you are here today at the Atlantic Council because tomorrow, July 9, is the Senator's 60th birthday. So we're delighted that you took the time also to be here today. And a pre-happy birthday. Now, following Senator Graham's remarks, Jake Tapper, who is here, will moderate a discussion and take some questions from the audience. Jake is a CNN anchor and chief Washington correspondent who joined the network in January 2013. And after almost two and a half years of anchoring his very successful weekday show, The Lead with Jake Tapper, he was selected in April as the new host of Sunday's State of the Union. We're delighted that you are here and moderating this discussion, very important discussion on America's role in the world. So with that, I'd like to welcome the 2016 presidential candidate and Senator Lindsey Graham to the stage. Senator Graham, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you. Great kind of. Thank you. My number one goal is to make sure I'm not the last person to come to the Atlantic Council running for president. That, you, that after me, you wouldn't want anybody else. Uh, the bottom line is, thank you very much for the opportunity. I follow your work, Fred, very closely. I think you do a great job in terms of the people you have and uh, creating a really a thoughtful, quiet place to discuss foreign policy. As to Ambassador Cunningham. I don't know what kind of medal you give someone who served in Afghanistan as long as you did, but whatever it is, you deserve it. Um, Ambassador Cunningham and his wife represented our country in incredibly challenging venues, but no more challenging than Afghanistan. Thank you very much for your service, and if you got him on board, the Atlantic Council is moving in the right direction. Paula, thank you for a great uh, introduction. I've got about a 23-page speech. Uh, the Geneva Convention prevents me from reading it. <laughs> because <laughs> that violates about every article. So I'm not going to read the 23-page speech, but I'd like you, if you get bored, uh, if you want to look more in-depth of what I'm talking about, go to the speech. What I thought I'd have a little conversation here, and I want to spend some time with Jake and take questions from the office, uh, the audience. Number one, President of the United States' primary job, I think, is to be Commander-in-Chief. It's the most important job any president uh, has to perform, and we spend precious little time talking about it. For the last month, I've been talking about the tragedy in Charleston, understandably so. We move from one outrageous topic to the other, and it's pretty hard to focus on national security at a time when we should. So thank God that there's a place like the Atlantic Council where you can come have a discussion. As recently as Monday of this week, President Obama claimed that our strategy against ISIL is working and that we're more prepared to deal with major attacks against the homeland. In my view, the president consistently oversells our successes and minimizes the threats to our nation. There is no coherent strategy to degrade and destroy ISIL, and there are more radical Islamic groups with the cap capability and capacity, desire, to strike our homeland than any time since 9-11. Our defenses are being overwhelmed by the number of threats, 
and as the threats grow, we can continue to cut our budget and embrace strategies that are not designed to destroy ISIL, but, that, but pass this problem along to the next president, in my view. Simply put, President Obama's foreign policy has been a disaster, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was one of his chief architects. Elections are about choices. You got 16 people to choose from as of this morning on the Republican side. You've got several on the Democratic side. When it comes to foreign policy, Lindsey Graham offers a very clear and different path. The path that I embrace is one of, uh, it's gonna be tough, but the outcome would assure a safe America. The Obama-Clinton path has been one from leading from behind, hoping that threats would go away, claiming to have strategies to defeat and grade, degrade ISIL that actually have no chance of working. The foundation of my foreign policy would be as follows. Superior capability, overwhelming capacity, and most important of all, determined will. Without superior capability and overwhelming capacity, you invite aggression. And under the construct called sequestration, we're losing our capability and our capacity and hard and soft power. But without will, it's all talk. President Obama, I think, has blinked in the face of many challenges. The Arab Spring is still alive and well. The Arab Spring is a desire by women, young people, and disenfranchised live a better life. To those who are running for president, and openly embrace, I wish Gaddafi were still around and Saddam Hussein was still in power. Here's my challenge to you. Allow your families to live in those countries and see how you feel. See how you feel when your daughter walks down the street and somebody in the regime would like to have her and she has no ability to say no. So to anybody who wants to be president of the United States and embraces bringing back dictators, I think you've made two fundamental mistakes. One, you don't realize who we are as a nation. And number two, you don't realize what's going on in the world, particularly the Middle East. Young people, women, and the disfranchised will not live in dictatorships for our convenience any longer, nor should we ask them. They're tired of having their fate determined on the day of their birth without much ability to change it. The, high, the Arab Spring has been hijacked. When the dictator falls, the one thing I've learned that other institutions will take over if we don't plan for the fall. Tribal, sectarian institutions will replace the dictator. They're usually the most organized and strongest. But do not mistake what's going on for the Mideast as the end of the desire of young people, women, and the disenfranchised to have a say. They did not take Mubarak down. Gaddafi down, Saddam down. They don't want Assad to go to be replaced by Al-Qaeda or ISIL. If you think that, you absolutely have no understanding of what's going on in the Mideast. So I hope that the next president of the United States will try to reconstruct the Arab Spring. And as we confront dictators, the worst possible thing you can do is draw a red line. They cross it and nothing happens. My view is that Assad will be in power after Obama leaves. President Obama correctly said Assad must go. If he doesn't go, 
you will never reset world order in the Mideast. He is a magnet for every Sunni extremist. He has killed 200,000 of his own people. He's incapable of governing that country. He's a puppet of Iran. And for him to go is an absolute must, and we have no strategy that would lead to him leaving. At the end of the day, no Arab army is going in on the ground in Syria to destroy ISIL for our benefit and leave Assad in power. So when it comes to Iraq and Afghanistan, I will tell you, excuse me, Iraq, Syria, I will tell you in great detail what I would do. But the first thing I want to talk to you about is the most existential threat to world order is the nuclear ambitions of the Iranians. There's some things you can get wrong and live to fight another day. There's some things you have to get right because if you don't, you'll throw the world in chaos that we haven't seen since World War II. My belief is that the Iranian regime <clears throat> is not moderate. The people in Iran are people we could do business with. The young people in Iran want similar things that the Arab Spring wants. There was a Persian Spring, for lack of a better word, in 2009 where the people went out in the streets demanding better governance, not wanting to live under a dictatorship, a, a theocracy, not a dictatorship. We basically sat on the sidelines and said we did not want to disrupt our ability to negotiate with the Ayatollah <clears throat> by coming to your aid. The sign when they held up in the streets of uh, Tehran, are you with us, or are you with them, was a very important moment that we let pass. As to the nuclear ambitions of the Iranians, if you want a peaceful nuclear power program, and I'm president, you can have it. I don't mind Iran or any other nation having nuclear power for peaceful purposes. If you want an enrichment program, large in nature, that will lead one day to a nuclear breakout like North Korea, you will not have it. If you want a war, you will lose it. Here's my belief. There are no moderates running Iran. The President Rouhani and the Foreign Minister really have no moderate voice within them. And if they have, it's not being very effective. During the negotiations, the Iranian regime has spread more terror, toppled more governments than before the negotiations started. Under sanctions, under the control of a new moderate president, look what they've done throughout the Mideast. Yemen, the Houthi rebels couldn't last five minutes without Iranian support. We've been driven out of Yemen. The pro-Western government has been toppled because of support by Iran. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is probably the second most lethal organization to the American homeland, and we have no eyes and ears because we've been driven out. Is that a moderate? Assad wouldn't last two minutes without Iranian support. If Syria continues the way it's going in the next year, I worry that Lebanon and Jordan will collapse. To those who want to act versus not acting, there's a calculation. Choosing and not, not choosing is a choice of its own. To those who worry about the day after Assad, which you should worry about, here's my retort. What happens if we continue on the same track? What's the consequences to the region if Assad's still in power in January 2017? There are more Syrian children in Lebanese schools at the primary level than there are Lebanese children. The King of Jordan is being overwhelmed by Syrian refugees. At the end of the day, if Syria is not addressed, 
it's going to take Lebanon, Jordan down with it. The strategy articulated by President Obama to degrade and destroy ISIL doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of working. You have to look at Iraq and Syria as a single battle space. If you do not, you're making a very big mistake. You will never bring stability to Iraq unless you deal with the Syrian safe havens. The capital of the caliphate is inside Syria, not Iraq. So I believe that you must have a strategy with a ground component beyond the Kurds to actually destroy the uh, caliphate inside of Syria. To those who want to rely upon the Kurds as the exclusive ground force, you don't understand the Mideast. And I hear people on our side of the aisle, Senator Cruz often talks about just arm the Kurds. Does anyone really believe the Kurds have the capability, the will, and the desire to go and liberate Syria? If you want to create another conflict, arm the Kurds to the point that they create friction with the Turkey and other regional uh, problem areas. So this idea that the Kurds are going to go into Ramadi as a ground force is not going to happen. The idea that the Kurds could be the liberating force inside of Syria is a fantasy. Iraq. We have 3,500 American forces in Iraq. Too few to do what we need to do. If I were President of the United States, I would follow Jack Keane's advice and I would increase ground forces on the U.S. side inside of Iraq. We'd go to approximately 10,000 and here's what they would be doing. There'd be a special forces component. That special forces component would hunt the leadership of ISIL morning, noon, and night. Not just a single raid, but multiple raids. We would decapitate their leadership. There would be forward air controllers to make sure we actually drop bombs on the right targets. There would be an intelligence capability we don't have today. There'd be a couple of battalions of uh, aviation assets, attack helicopters, to back up the Iraqi army so they'd have a decisive advantage. And we'd have trainers and advisors embedded at the battalion level so that the Iraqi army would not cut and run. We would put an enormous amount of pressure on ISIL inside of Iraq. We would work with the Iraqi government to rebuild the coalition that worked right after the surge. We would neutralize the best I could the Iranian influence inside of Iraq. The most lethal ground component inside of Iraq is Shia militias governed by Iran. That is not good for us. As to Afghanistan, Ambassador Cunningham did a heroic job of holding the place together under the Karzai presidency. It was the most frustrating experience I've ever had as a United States Senator dealing with Karzai. We have a better partner today. Here's the challenge for Afghanistan. If we go down to 1,000 U.S. combat forces, Kabul-centric, training the Iraqi, excuse me, the Afghan military, then that is a mistake for the ages. We will have the same outcome we did in Iraq. The counterterrorism mission in Afghanistan directly protects our homeland. The terrorist organizations that reside along the Afghan-Pakistan border are incredibly lethal and they're growing in influence. So if I were president, we would leave the 9,800 we have today in place 
and I'd put on the table building up if it were necessary. Not one soldier would come home until the conditions warrant. I see Afghanistan as a line of defense for America, that all the gains we fought for in the last 10 years would be lost if we go down to 1,000 people in Kabul, losing the ability to reach the whole country. The counterterrorism force that I would have in place would be more than 1,000. It is in America's national security interest to keep a counterterrorism force in Afghanistan as long as it takes to eradicate the threats along the border. The Afghan army is getting better. They would be out front, but we would provide them capacity they do not have today. At the end of the day, the decision President Obama is about to make regarding Afghanistan will be one of the most consequential decisions he makes as president. But the most important decision he's going to make is Iran. Back to Iran. I want a deal, but it must be a good deal. A bad deal would create a nuclear arms race in the Mideast. What is a bad deal? A deal in the eyes of the Sunni Arabs that give the Iranians too much capability so they can no longer sit on the sidelines as Sunni Arabs and not get into the nuclear arena themselves. I believe that the number of centrifuges we're talking about leaving in place and the lack of the ability to go anytime, anywhere, including military facilities, is going to be seen by Sunni Arabs is too much to give the Shia Persians. I believe that if you give the Iranians 50 or 100 billion dollars as a signing bonus, that they're going to put the money into the war machine and not build schools and roads. As I speak, Sunni Arabs are very worried about the influence Iran has achieved under sanctions. I think if you infuse this regime with more money, you're going to see a tremendous backlash by Sunni Arabs. At the end of the day, what does Israel do? Israel has said to my face and to anybody that would listen, there are certain red lines we're not going to allow Iran to cross in terms of our nuclear program. Because Israel believes that when they chant death to Israel and Iran, they actually mean it. When they chant death to America, is it just all talk? Do they mean it? Why would you in 2015 give a capability to a country who constantly chants death to your country at the highest levels? I would love to end the nuclear ambitions of the Iranians without firing a shot. But you have to know who you're talking to and what they actually want. I believe they want a nuclear weapon to ensure regime survivability. I believe they're going to push for as much as they can get, as long as they can push. And the idea of the UN being a wall between us and a breakout by Iran is not very comforting to me. This is North Korea in the making. If I were president, I would tell them they could have an enrichment program consistent with supplying the practical needs of a single reactor. If I were president, I would create an international inspection regime unlike anything you've ever seen. Anytime, anywhere would mean anytime, anywhere. I would not give them a dollar more of money until they change their behavior. And at the end of the day, the inspection regime would not end based on the passage of time. It would end based on the change in behavior. Anything short of that, 
is going to trigger a nuclear arms race in the Mideast. Anything short of that exposes Israel to the existential threat they cannot accommodate. The one thing about Israel, they'll defeat every terrorist organization surrounded, they, that surrounds Israel. They can defeat any army that you throw against them, multiple armies. But the one thing they can't defeat is a radical Islamist group with a weapon of mass destruction available to them. That is a line that Israel will never allow to be crossed. The only reason 3,000 of us died on 9-11 and not 3 million is because they couldn't get the weapons to kill 3 million of us. If Iran developed a nu nuclear capability, I fear they would share it with a terrorist group and it would come here. When they say death to Israel, death to America, I don't believe they're kidding. My policy as president would be pretty simple when it came to radical Islam, Sunni, Shia, and nature. Whatever it takes, as long as it takes, to defeat the forces of radical Islam. When I hear a Republican candidate for president say, I wouldn't send any more troops into Iraq, tell me why you would expect a different outcome than what President Obama is achieving today. When I hear a candidate for president on the Republican side say, I'm not into open-ended commitments. To the people in the Mideast, that comes out differently than you intend. That shows a sign of weakness at a time when we need to be strong. Whether you agree with me or not, most people in the Mideast know me, and I know them. And when it comes to defending this nation, I think most people in the region believe that I would have the ability to create a peaceful conclusion to all conflicts, but if it took war, and you wanted a war, you would lose it if I were president. Our homeland is at risk, unlike any time since 9-11. I'm often known for military solutions to problems. Without security, there will never be political progress. We saw that in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I want to end on this note. To the American people, what awaits us is a huge challenge. What is winning in the war on terror? Winning to me is when radical Islam can be contained by the armies and police forces within the region where it arose. That they have the capability to keep it at bay, to protect themselves and us. It's a roaring hot fire today, radical Islam. My goal is to make it an ember, like other radical movements. That's going to take, ladies and gentlemen, a generational commitment. A small schoolhouse in a remote region in Afghanistan, Jim, educating a young girl would do more damage to the Taliban than any bomb we could drop on their head. I'm taking sides in two historical struggles. I'm taking side with the people in the faith that reject radical Islam, that would practice their faith and find a way for me to live in peace. I will be your friend. And that's the overwhelming majority. To the young people of the region, to women, to the disenfranchised, I adopt your cause of better governance and social justice. Because if you fail, we fail. The outcome of losing to radical Islam for America is a nightmare. For the region, 
is beyond a nightmare. The stakes could not be higher. So to those on the Republican side who want to become Fortress America, I'm your worst choice. To my friend Rand Paul, we agree on a lot, but this we disagree. He is the one voice in the Republican Party that I think has been weaker on national security than that of President Obama. We will never get a good deal with the Iranians as long as President Obama is President of the United States because he's viewed as weak in the eyes of the Iranians and uncertain in the eyes of our friends. I think everybody running except Rand Paul could get a better deal with the Iranians. So as President of the United States, I would shape world events rather than be overwhelmed by them. If history has taught us anything, then when America is quiet and America is confused about her role in the world, bad people and dangerous movements thrive. The Christian faith is being wiped out before our eyes. This is 2015, not 1115. A young girl, three years old, was executed in ISIL held territory. When people reached out to the Western world to help the Jewish people and others oppressed by the Nazis, we always had a reason to wait. We apparently didn't believe Hitler when he said what he was going to do. <clears throat> Here's what I've concluded. I believe radical Islam in terms of what they want to do. I reject what they want to do. And as President of the United States, I will empower others to stop them. I will be your partner. I don't know how to defend this country without some of us having to go back over there and fight. When it comes to being Commander-in-Chief, whatever it takes, as long as it takes. And if you don't do something like Simpson Bowles to deal with the 80 million retirement of the baby boomers, we're going to become Greece. So I'll end on this thought. By 2031, we're going to spend all the revenue we collect in taxes on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and interest on the debt. There will be no money for the Department of Defense or the 150 account unless we raise taxes or dramatically cut entitlement benefits. So if you're serious about being President of the United States, you have to put on the table something like Simpson-Bowles, where we adjust the age of retirement, means test benefits, flatten out the tax code and take some of the money that go to the few and apply it to the debt that the many of us will inherit. Without a big deal in America, dealing with our entitlement problems and retirement of the baby boomers, America ceases to be a big deal in the world. I'll talk about China later to our Chinese friends. If you want a good relationship, you can have it. If you want to cheat, hack into our systems, cyber attack this nation, steal property not yours, you're going to have a contest. Thank you very much. Strong letter to follow. <laughs> a lot to chew over there. Thanks so much, for everybody, for being here. I'm going to ask uh, the senator a few questions, uh, and then uh, we will open the floor 
Uh, and if you have questions, uh, we will <coughs> come up with a, an orderly and polite way to, to ask them. And we, uh, we're definitely going to give everybody an opportunity to ask some. <coughs> Let me start with, I have so many questions I want to start with, Senator. Um, but I'll start with a lot of the premise of your foreign policy seems to be based upon the projection of strength. The Iranians yes. do not consider President Obama to be strong in your view. Therefore, they are trying to negotiate uh, a bad deal. How does that square <coughs> with the reality of what the Iranians did while George W. Bush was president? I think you would agree, under your definition, he invaded two Muslim countries. He started two wars. Uh, all right, maybe that's a little glib. He, he sent US troops to fight in two wars overseas. <clears throat> he would fit the definition, I would think, in your view, of somebody who projected strength. And yet the Iranians did the same types of things, cheated, hid yeah. their nuclear program. So uh, explain that. Well, when it comes to Iran, he didn't project strength. They had hundreds of centrifuges on his watch. By the time he was out, they had thousands. Plenty of blame to go around here. When it comes to Iran, we haven't had a forceful policy. I think when you look at the Bush years, one of his biggest mistakes is having a confusing policy toward Iran. There was debate in the Bush administration to whether to take military action against Iran. World War II was caused because of the lingering effects of World War I. We're haunted by Iraq. Does that make sense to you? Everything we do has got the Iraq war in the back of our mind, and I think that's a mistake. As to President Bush, if I know then what I know now, I wouldn't have invaded uh, Iraq, but I'd still try to push Saddam out. He was shooting at U.S. aircraft patrolling the skies under international law. He was denying access to weapon sites uh, based on U.N. resolutions, and he was gassing the Kurds. Plenty of reason for him to go. There'd have been a better way to do it without a ground invasion. I'm glad he's gone. The biggest mistake I think President Bush made, and to some extent Lindsey Graham, is not appreciating what happens when the dictator falls. So the fact that President Bush was strong did help with Gaddafi. I don't think Gaddafi would have given up his weapons if we hadn't gone into Iraq, and I'm glad he did. When it comes to Iran, I don't think we've ever really engaged these guys in the right fashion. And as President of the United States, I would change the paradigm between us and the Iranians. In terms of where U.S. troops should go, I just want to try to get some clarity. So you said very specifically there should be 10,000 U.S. forces <clears throat> in Iraq fighting ISIL. Right. Uh, and you enumerated special forces, intelligence, right. et cetera. How many forces do you think there should be in Afghanistan? <clears throat> we got 9,800. I would keep those in place. That allows us to have a reach, and we'll have about 5,000, I think, NATO partners. That allows you the north, south, east, and west. The Germans will stay in the north if we stay. Nobody's going to get to our right. I worry about the north, but in the Helmand province, uh, Kandahar area, it's idiotic to close down all the intel gathering sites, all the CIA bases along the Afghan-Pakistan border. They're godsends to our nation, but having a foothold in all four corners of Afghanistan can be done with 9,800 troops. You can train and advise uh, at the uh, regimental level. And if I thought we needed more, I would send them. But the counterterrorism mission is the most important mission to us. If you get down to 1,000 Kabul-centric troops, you're giving up the intelligence gathering that comes with a bigger force. <clears throat> the CIA can't operate by themselves. And that CT mission protects us all here. 
and at 1,000, that is lost. So 9,800 would allow you a robust CT component and would ensure that the gains we fought for would not be lost. You, correct me if I'm wrong, you do not favor sending U.S. troops into Syria, but you do favor allowing regional Arab countries to send troops I, into Syria to, favor, to defeat Assad. I do favor sending U.S. troops. U.S. troops into Syria as yes, well? Yes, absolutely. How many U.S. troops into Syria? Well, I just don't make these numbers up, Jake. I talk to people who are uh, military leaders who the architect of the surge, Jack Keane, has convinced me that 3,500 in Iraq doesn't get the job done. You need about 10,000. So how do you fix Iraq if you don't deal with Syria? How do you save Lebanon and Jordan and our friends in the region from further catastrophe if you don't deal with the source of the problem? You never fix Assad unless he goes. The caliphate mainly exists in Syria. It would be a large military operation. So I'd go to the Turks. I'd go to the Saudis. I'd go to, the, uh, to Egypt, all the countries with large armies, and I'd say, here's the deal, guys. You want Assad on the table, he's on the table. They're not going in just to fight ISIL. They're not going to give half of Syria to Iran. But here's the price of admission. Stop funding terrorist organizations. Stop double dealing. Stop giving one group money and fighting them the next day. I want you to change your behavior. And if I hear of any of you funneling money to any of these radical groups, then we're going to have a really unpleasant conversation. And I'll let women drive. Up your game at home a little bit. Get with the program here. And we'll go in. And there'll be about 10,000 of us, probably, maybe less. 10,000 U.S. or 10,000 the whole? 10,000 probably us, because I don't want to lose. You're going to need a large force. There are 30,000 uh, 30 or 40,000 ISIL guys, only God knows how many. I'm not looking for a fair fight here. I'm looking for a large regional army where the vast majority of the ground component would be Arabs and Turks. But I fear that if they go in without us, they could actually lose. And there'd be some of us intermixed doing things that they don't do so well. There'd be a special forces component, which would be in our interest to make sure we destroy the ISIL leadership. There would be forward air controllers to make sure they're dropping bombs on the right people, not each other. And at the end of the day, I think we'd have to have a ground component to supplement the Arab force to make them successful. And what happens the day after is very important. You have to have a holding force, clear hold and build. If we're not there, I think that would be a mistake because there are differences within the coalition that you're all very aware of. So there'd be an American component on day one. There'd be an American component uh, during the holding and the building. And the amount of money it takes to reconstruct Syria makes Iraq look like a walk in the park. They're going to pay for it. The region's going to pay for it. The American taxpayer is going to contribute some, but they're going to have the bulk of the expenses of repairing Syria. And the holding force has to provide enough security to allow political reconciliation from the Alawites and every other group. And here's the good news for Americans. The average Syrian is not a radical Islamist. The Arab Spring wasn't to get Assad out to put ISIL in charge or al-Qaeda. To the people who think they took Qaddafi on to replace him with uh, al-Qaeda, they don't know what they're talking about. The Islamists in Libya got 10% of the vote the first couple of times around. We made a mistake not helping the army and the police force fill in the vacuum after Gaddafi failed. Don't do it in Syria. Have a game plan where you have a regional force accepted by the Syrian people to hold the place together, rebuild Syria, to bring out a political reconciliation. It's going to take a long time. We'd have to be part of that force. So we got 9,800 at least in Afghanistan if I'm president. We're going to go from 3,500 to 10,000 if I'm president. And we're going to come up with a regional army of which we will be a part to go into Syria if I'm president. So here's the one thing I want you to know if I'm president. We're going to actually degrade and destroy ISIL. We're not going to talk about it 
And the only way I know to do it is going on the ground. And the best way to go on the ground is partner with people in the region. And we're not leaving till we get this right. We're not leaving based on a passage of time. We're leaving when we can afford to leave, when we're safe. Our national security is not determined by the day we leave Afghanistan. It's by what we left behind. And thanks to Jim and others, there's a lot of hope in Afghanistan if we get this right. And you've also threatened uh, using military force to destroy Iran's nuclear program if they don't acquiesce. You got that right. Okay. How would that military action take place? It would be overwhelming. Uh, we would destroy their ability to offensively respond. We've got thousands of troops in the region that they could hit. Some of our key allies are within rocket and missile range. So here's what I tell the Iranians. I'd like to get a nuclear deal good for us all. I don't want a war, but if that's what you want, you're going to lose it. <clears throat> Anything short of that, you'll never get a good deal. So they have a very old air force. They have a very small navy. If I'm president of the United States and they want to try to break out nuclearly, a nuclear breakout, we're not just going after your facilities. We're going after your offensive capability. We're going to sink your Navy and we're going to shoot your Air Force down. If that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. But that's the trigger is the breakout. Yes. I'm not going to invade Iran using ground forces. I'm not going to do anything as long as there's hope for negotiations. But if I see a nuclear breakout, then we're going to stop it. I would use whatever force is consistent with stopping the breakout, but at the end of the day, that would not be enough. I think you have to, at that moment, go after the offensive capability to protect your allies and yourself within the region. Your uh, fellow Republican presidential candidate, Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey, said recently that were he to be president and there were an Iran <coughs> deal in right. place, an Iranian nuclear deal in place, he would not <coughs> necessarily pledge to undo it if he took office. He would wait to see. That's, that's smart. I know if it's a good deal, I wouldn't undo it. A bad deal, I would undo. A bad deal is one that creates a nuclear arms race in the Mideast. Does that make sense? Don't you think what the Arabs say really matters? Huh? What Obama's doing Not to me. We'll, but, get, we'll get to questions okay, from the yeah. audience in a second. I know, I hear you. Fair enough. I think what Obama's doing doesn't make sense. I think what he's doing is negotiating on their nuclear program and completely ignoring their other behavior. How does anybody in the region feel with the negotiations going like this? As you negotiate with these, the Iranians, they've toppled four Arab capitals. That's not exactly reinforcing the Iran we would all like to have. If they're a moderate country, what would an extreme one look like? This is a, well, I don't, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to audience okay, questions well, in a second. Okay, well, let me just say this. You got Iran and Saudi Arabia. I don't feel threatened by Saudi Arabia. I feel threatened by the Iranians. All right, moving on. You recently told uh, Jeffrey Goldberg uh, of Russia. You yeah. said, Putin, your worst days are ahead, pal. Yeah. <clears throat> what does that mean? That means that the ability to topple your neighbors and dismember Ukraine without any heavier prices behind you. That means if you think about going into an Article 5 NATO nation because there's some Russian speakers don't do it. It means that we're going to come up with a strategy to undercut your monopoly on natural gas. If I'm President of the United States, we're going to export more natural gas. We're going to find more here. We're going to use it to our benefit, but we're going to create an export licensing agreement with Eastern European countries and other countries that depend on Russian gas and over the arc of time undercut him. He's got a pair of twos. We've got a full house. We're, play, we're paying it, playing it very poorly. I would defensively arm the Ukrainian 
people, give them defensive weapons to fight back to increase the cost of his intervention. Uh, I would keep sanctions in place even at a higher level on him and his oligarch buddies. At the end of the day, I'd reinforce NATO. I would set aside defense cuts under uh, sequestration. I'd push for something like Simpson-Bowles so we'd have the capability to do things I just described. And I'd go to all the uh, NATO nations and say, please get up to 2% as soon as you can because I'm tired of defending the world and y'all not helping as much as you should. I want to, um, there's been criticism of your presidential launch and your, the tone. There's obviously been some fans as well. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, writing in four, I want to read one uh, pointed note of criticism and, and have you sure. respond. Writing in foreign policy, Michael Cohen says of your overall tone and approach, quote, in a town filled with threat mongers, fear merchants, and hand ringers, <laughs> there was no one mongering more threats, <laughs> selling more fear, and wringing more hands than Senator Graham. It's going to be awfully hard for candidate Graham to lift people up when he's constantly telling them the sky is falling. Yeah, I, here's what I'd say, that, that the threats I've outlined either are true or they're not. I think most Americans understand that if they'll cut a three-year-old kid's head off, that's not good for us. I think most Americans see radical Islam as an existential threat to just humanity. That it's not a regional war, that it's a war against humanity. I think most Americans are ready to take the fight back to these guys. 72% of the Iacocca scores believe we should send troops to the Mideast. Well, I agree with you. Not because I like war, because I want war, because I want to defend my nation. I've learned a lot from Bush's mistakes, my mistakes, and Obama's mistakes. The first thing I've learned that radical Islam is not going to be compromised with. They're religious Nazis. Somebody better go over there and hit them before they hit us. There is no alternative to going in on the ground and pulling the caliphate up by the roots. If that scares you, don't vote for me. Because I am more worried about allowing this threat to get stronger than I am about being criticized myself. I know what's coming over the arc of time. The stronger they get there, the more exposed we are here. The richer they are over there, the more likely they are to use these riches against us and our allies. Time is not on our side. They're large, they're rich, they're entrenched. If I'm president, they're going to be small, poor, and on the run. At the end of the day, I would listen to my military commanders. Obama's decision to leave Iraq without any troops left behind was a conscious choice he made. It was not the Iraqis' fault. He wanted to fulfill a campaign promise to get us to zero. And every military commander said, if you go there, you're going to have hell to pay, and hell has been to pay. I would listen to my military commanders. I'd come up with uh, military strategies that are focused, that require partnerships. I'm not a go-along kind of guy. But at the end of the day, people are not going to follow an uncertain trumpet. I am offering a solution to radical Islam that will be hard, but I think it's the right solution. I'm offering a generational commitment to young people, women, and disenfranchised, because if we don't make that generational commitment, if we don't stick with it, radical Islam will come back. What would happen if we left Germany and Japan behind? If you're too tired to defend this country, you're too war-weary, don't vote for me. I am going to take the fight to these guys in a smart way. When it comes to Iran, I'm not going to let them achieve a nuclear capability to throw the world into chaos. The worst possible outcome for the world at large is to have a nuclear arms race in the Mideast between Sunni Arabs and Shia Persians, and we're damn close to it. Weakness invites aggression. Ronald Reagan did two really smart things. He took the Greenspan Commission report, 
had a drink with Tiff O'Neill and they enacted the Greenspan Commission Report to save Social Security for 40 years by adjusting the age of retirement. He stood in front of the Berlin Wall and said, on the other side is evil, tear down this wall. President Obama took Simpson's bowls and threw it in the garbage can. And when the Arab Spring was in front of him and the Persian Spring was in front of him, he took a pass. And we're paying a heavy price for both of those mistakes. Two, po two quick points I want to make about issues that you just brought up. One is, you talked about President Obama withdrawing US troops from Iraq. Yeah. The Obama argument, the White House argument, <clears throat> is that the Iraqi government would not give immunity to US troops. You're a retired judge advocate general in the US Air Force Reserves. Right. I can't believe that immunity for US troops wouldn't be a priority for you. Well, number one, it would be. I wouldn't leave any forces behind in any foreign country that would be subject to being prosecuted by weak and effective government. But that's what President Obama... Well, that's all a bunch of BS. At the end of the day, the Iraqis were willing to accept troops. I was there. I went there a bunch. I was with Maliki, Ambassador Jeffries, and General Austin, me, McCain, and Lieberman, talking about a residual force. He asked the question, how many are you talking about? I turned to General Austin. Well, tell us, General. Well, we're still not sure. The number that he recommended was 18,000. The bottom line for Admiral Mullen was 10,000. At the end of the day, they were down to 3,500 in the White House and falling. So to anybody who thinks that the Iraqis took the number from 18,000 to below 3,000, that's not true. The White House would not commit to a number. They kept changing the number. They wanted the results they got. They wanted this thing to go to Parliament, which would have been a disaster. He wanted out, and he found a way out. I was on the ground. I talked to Alawi. I talked to Barzani. I talked to Maliki. They were all ready to join hands and accept a residual force, but it had to be of such capacity to make a difference. So President Obama, during the 2012 debate, objected to the idea that he wanted 10,000 troops left behind because when Mitt Romney said in the debate, well, I agree with the president. I think we should leave 10,000 troops behind. I said, I never said that. They're rewriting history, and they're doing the same damn thing in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, the Afghan government would accept 9,800 troops or more. So if you go down to 1,000 in Afghanistan, it's not because the Afghan people don't want us there in that and those numbers, it's because President Obama wants to end the war. Well, he's not ending the war. He's going to lose the war. He didn't end the war in Iraq. He created a bigger war. Bush made his mistakes. Obama made his fair share, too. The mistake I'm not going to make is to ignore sound military advice. I could care less what anybody writing in any paper says about me. I know exactly who I am. I know exactly what I believe. I've been over there 35 times busting my butt to understand what's going on on the ground. And we're going to win this war. We're going to destroy radical Islam in partnership with others because the alternative is unacceptable. To the Iranians, you're not going to get a nuclear weapon. You're not going to get a bunch of money to feed your war machine until you change your behavior. That's not too much to ask. To Putin, if you think you're going to be able to muscle, way, muscle your way around Europe, forget it. To the Chinese, if you build islands over resource-rich waters claimed by others, you're not acting as a normal nation. You're violating every construct of international law. When we signed the agreement with the Ukrainians, if you'll give up your 2,400 nuclear weapons, we will guarantee your sovereignty, and Putin has stepped all over that. The world is in chaos. International agreements are no better than the thug trying to challenge them. America needs to stand up for who we are and what we believe, or we will pay a heavy price. I have one more question, and then I'm going to open the floor uh, to questions. How are we doing that? Do we have a microphone, or are people just going to? We have a microphone. so. Um, 
you, you keep on mentioning Simpson Bowles, which uh, I'm sure this is a smart crowd, but just in case there's anybody here who doesn't know, <laughs> Simpson Bowles was a, a presidential Obama commission on, on how to reduce the national debt and the deficit. Uh, and after the results were released, um, which were not embraced by, I think it was like a two-thirds majority of the commission. Uh, it was a majority, but not a two-thirds. President Obama kind of backed away from it. But the, the U.S. Senate did too. And senators in your party, I don't have the voting sheet in front of me, but I know Senator McCain didn't vote for it, and I was surprised by was that. Was he on the committee? No, no, no. When it, when it came to the Senate. Yeah, well, nobody's going to vote for, for a plan without having some idea how to shape it. Nobody's going to accept a work product from another person in totality. Here's what I think we have to do. Do you agree that the 80 million baby boomer retirement is going to wipe out Medicare and Social Security? If you don't agree with that, you're not listening to people who are telling you that's a fact. We're down to two workers for every retiree, Jake, in the next 20 years. When I was born in 1950, there were 16 workers, uh, 55, in 1950, there were 16 workers for every retiree, and 20 years are going to be two. We all live longer. How do two people support Medicare and Social Security for 80 million retirees? The math doesn't work. The whole thing's going to fall apart. So at the end of the day, what I would do as president, I would dust off Simpson Bowles, and I would change it. Their military spending is too low. But I would tell the American people that we're going to have to means test benefits. If you make $200,000 a year in retirement, you get $109 a month subsidy to pay your Medicare Part D premiums. Does everybody follow that? Part D under Medicare is your prescription drug uh, benefit. People at $200,000 get a subsidy from the federal government of $109, $109 a month. You're borrowing that from your grandkids. If I'm president, you're going to pay it yourself. Okay. Most people would. To younger people in this crowd, you're going to have to work a little bit longer. We all live longer. There's no way to fix this unless you have a baby boomer of 60-year-olds. I'm going to be 60 tomorrow. Strom Thurmond had four kids after he's 67. If you don't want to go down that road, then we better have a rational immigration system. So why do you need immigration? Because we won't have the workforce in the future to supplement our economy because we're a declining population like every other Western nation. If you don't get this right, foreign policy is just all talk because you won't have the capability to execute a foreign policy. All right. Fair enough. Hey, uh, people are awake. Uh, why don't we start with this gentleman, and then we'll do you after that. Uh, do you want to bring the microphone? And if you could identify uh, who you are, that'd be great. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. Senator, good to see you again. Thank you for your you. candid remarks. Um, what you say as Commander-in-Chief is predicated on having a strong military, obviously. A number of us, particularly the Defense Business Board, argues the greatest threat to the U.S. military right now is not sequestration, no matter how irrational, even if it goes away, or recrudescent Russia or China, but internal, uncontrollable cost growth. Totally. For everything. Um, it's also interesting, we're spending more money now on defense than we did during the Reagan buildup with about a million fewer people in uniform. Uh, what would you do, and I know that the Senate Armed Service Committee in the House has put in right. place some real reforms, but they're dealing with, they're dealing with uh, symptoms and not causes. We're headed to a hollow force the way we're directed, and right. these uncontrollable growth is going to exceed our capacity to pay. What would be your view, your vision, to maintain a strong, ready military when you know we're not going to be able to sustain the level of spending absent another crisis like September 11th? Okay. So first, if you don't get something done on entitlements, and to get Democrats on board, we've got to do revenue. Any Republicans in the room? Here's our challenge. So sheepish. <laughs> be proud. Here's our challenge. To get a Democrat to means test benefits and age adjust we're going to have to do something. Simpson-Bowles requires us to flatten out the tax code. 
take some of the money that would go into a deduction or a credit and apply it to the debt, some of it to reduce rates. Grover Norquist, I like him a lot. The pledge says that if you reduce a deduct, if you eliminate a deduction, all the money has to go to lower taxes. Here's what I'm telling the Republican Party. No Democrat is going to adjust the age of retirement and means test benefits unless we do revenue. So I'm telling you here today as a candidate for president that I would do a revenue component to get Democrats in the room and the revenue would be eliminating deductions, applying some money to the $18 trillion debt. There's $70 trillion of unfunded liability generated by Medicare and Social Security bills and other entitlement bills that are not going to have enough revenue to meet the obligation. $18 trillion national debt pales in comparison to the unfunded liability. So if you don't get that right, <clears throat> the unfunded liability wipes out our ability to defend this nation and we literally become Greece. So the purpose of my presidency would get Democrats and Republicans in a room. Republicans give, Democrats give, do something like Simpson Bowles so they're going to be the leading power in the world again. The sooner you do it, the better off you are. As to the military, uh, I retired last Wednesday. I have been the author of reforms that have been somewhat unpopular, but I think are necessary. All of us are living longer, so you can't retire after 20 years and get 50% of your pay for the rest of your life because that puts pressure on the budget. TRICARE hasn't been adjusted in any significant way, health care for the military since 1995. It's going to be important over time to increase patient uh, contributions. The retired TRICARE community is going to have to increase uh, over time the amount they pay to make it sustainable. About 5% of the money to pay TRICARE bills comes from the patient population in the private sector, so about 20. So over time, we're going to have to ask TRICARE retirees to contribute more to make TRICARE more sustainable. I'd like to do it in forms of a means test. So what we've done is we said at 20, you get 40% of your defined benefit, but after two years in the military, you can take 5% of your base pay, put it into account, and the government will match it 5%, and you can have that money when you get retirement eligible. That will be a good chunk of money for you. 75% of the people who serve in the military never get a dime because they leave before 20. Under this no program, new program, you can take your contributions with you. I think we owe that. When it comes to procuring weapons, I would eliminate cost plus contracts everywhere I could and have a fixed price contract to put, put skin in the game in terms of uh, uh, the contractor community. I would take the Pentagon and make it more efficient. But health care reform is essential with inside the DOD to sustain uh, the amount of money you need because you're going to take money away from building a force, modernizing force to pay health care bills if you don't adjust the way TRICARE is affecting long-term budgets. I would put all that on the table. I'm not asking you to give me a pass on DOD. I would challenge DOD's way of doing business. But in 2021, we're down to 2.3% of GDP spent on defense if sequestration is fully implemented. I'm telling you now, that is an insane formula, uh, formula. To cut the military spending GDP-wise in half, given the threats we face, is, is, is crazy. A 420,000-person army awaits us. How does that army do the things that we need to do to protect us in this world? They can't. You're down to less than 280 ships in the Navy. How do you pivot to Asia? So sequestration has to be replaced, and you also should replace non-defense spending too. The FBI, the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the NSA, all of their budgets are being reduced. How do we protect against growing long wolf threats when the FBI budget is going to be cut by a third? 
sequestration is a very bad idea that needs to be replaced. All right, yes. Hi, my name is Medea Benjamin. I'm with the group Code Pink. Uh, I'm just horrified by your foreign policy because it's a prescription for endless war. And of course, that's why you feel you need this huge military budget because you want to keep us in these wars. I thought it was interesting that he uh, said that voting for the Iraq war was a bad idea. That's fabulous. I, I uh, wonder if you will admit that it was the Iraq war that led to ISIL and also recognize that your support for uh, overthrowing Qaddafi led to the chaos that's in Libya and is spreading all over today. Um, it was also interesting to hear you uh, say something critical about Saudi Arabia, because I never hear the senator criticizing Saudi Arabia. I wonder if you'd speak <coughs> out more about the beheadings uh, that Saudi does in the public squares, uh, 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 sentencing people to 10 years and a 1,000 lashes because they blog something that the Saudi <coughs> government doesn't like. You talk about Iran's intervention overseas, yeah. but you, will you talk about Saudi intervention, yeah, questions, Saudi's intervention in crushing the Arab Spring in Bahrain. How about that? And what about the Saudis killing of thousands of people in Yemen now? You also talk about the Arab Spring, but I don't hear you talk about Egypt, uh, the important okay, home of the Arab Spring. And the question here on Egypt is, um, what about the Sisi regime and the U.S. continuing to support okay. this very That's oppressive Sisi regime? And one last thing which is about Israel. If you want to talk about repression, will you talk about Israel's repression of the Palestinians, which happens on an every single day basis? Today is the one year anniversary of the invasion of Gaza. Will you say something about the over 2,000 people killed in Gaza by the Israelis, okay, including 551 children? Medea, will you also say something about the, the continued that's, settlements? That's the, and I have one last question, oh, on. which is about the nuclear. Be quiet. Uh, the one last question is about, if this important one, is about Israel's nuclear Medea. weapons. Uh, does, I have a question, Shh, be respectful Medea. of me. I have a question for the senator. Does Israel have nuclear weapons? How many do they have? Should Israel be forced to join All right, here we go. Nah, come on. Okay. All right, here we go. So I'm going to put her down as undecided. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is your country as much as mine. You've got a right to every opinion you've expressed, right? I couldn't disagree with you more. I think people like you make the world incredibly dangerous. I think people like you are, are radical Islam's best hope. Because you don't understand, let me finish. Can you just let him answer the question? You know, Iraq didn't bring on radical Islam. We got attacked on September the 11th, 2001. We didn't have one soldier in Afghanistan. We didn't have an embassy. We didn't give them one dime of aid. And they hit us anyway. This is a religious war, and if you don't understand that, you shouldn't be president of the United States. They have a religious agenda dictated by their view of God to kill every Christian they can find to destroy the state of Israel and come after us and take every Muslim and bend them to their will or cut their heads off. This happened long before Iraq. That's not why we're in trouble. It has nothing to do with us fighting back. It has everything to do with us not understanding what it takes to win. So as to radical Islam, you're not going to fool me that somehow we brought this upon ourselves. We did not. 
They represent a form of religion that is every much as dangerous as the Nazis were. They're an outlier in their faith, and I'm going to help people in that faith crush this movement. I'm going to help every young girl have a better future in the Mideast because our young girls are in their crosshairs too. It is time to fight back as to Israel. I blame Hamas. I don't blame Israel. It's a democracy in the Mideast. They're not perfect. But at the end of the day, the moral equivalency from an organization that shoots rockets from an apartment building hoping you'll hit it, indiscriminately trying to kill children, could care less where the rocket lands versus a professional military that tries to limit harm and damage is not even close. As to Hamas, you're a terrorist organization and you need to be wiped out by the Palestinian people. I hope they can form a government where Hamas is not in it. At the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, we're in a religious war. I didn't start this war, but somebody's got to end it. And you know who's going to end it? It will, people be, it will be people within the faith. It will be the young people in the region, the people who want a better life, who reject what these thugs have to offer. And here is my goal, where I find will to fight back against radical Islam and stand up to this theocracy that is so hateful at its core, I will provide it capacity. I will be your partner. All right. Um, you, sir. Hold on, there's a microphone coming. If you could limit it to one question, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I, I have the first. No, talk about Alexander Panov, uh, Voice of America Russian Service. Vladimir Putin is a problem for West, but in my opinion, he's first of all problem for Russia. Yeah, I agree. But majority of Russian uh, still can, uh, supports him. They are under heavy influence of powerful brainwashing propaganda machine. And now the question, is it a task for the next American president try to open eyes to the Russian people or it's none of American business. Let Russian continue to live in a George Orwell world. Yeah, think? I think the way you marginalize Putin over time is that you, you don't allow him to have best of both worlds, to basically dismember neighbors he doesn't agree with and still somehow you know, come out of this thing strong. The Russian people, <clears throat> he's got a nationalist strain here that, that appeals to the Russian people. But here's what I would say to the Russian people. It's not right what your leader is doing to the Ukraine. That's not right. And without Russian support, there would be no dismemberment of the Ukraine. The Russian people, in my view, uh, are going to have to understand that if I'm president, we're not going to let President Putin do what he's doing. We're not going to let him threaten NATO nations who have Russian speakers any longer. That he's trampled on the agreement we have with the Ukraine and to the Russian people. If our word means nothing to the Ukrainians, maybe it doesn't mean anything to other people too. The worst thing you can do is sign an agreement with a country like the Ukraine, tell them to give up their nuclear arsenal, guarantee their sovereignty, and be AWOL when they need you the most. The next country is not going to give up their nuclear weapons. So there is no pathway forward that I see without putting pressure on Putin, and unfortunately, the Russian people will feel that pain too. So here's my advice to the Russian people. Don't accept this any longer. Don't let Putin and his buddies rip you off. Enrich themselves at your expense. Stand up and push back. Easy for me to say. Everybody that stands up to Putin meets an untimely death. At the end of the day, 
Putin needs to be held in check better than he is. And eventually the Russian people will turn on him. That's the way all these movies end. We have time for a few more questions. I'd love to, yes, the young lady with the glasses. Hi, my name is Julia Wolf. I'm with the Belgian Embassy. I was wondering what sort of social, economic, and political strategies you would enact in the Middle East in conjunction with military action to ensure that the peace you want to create would be lasting. Okay, let's go back to Egypt. Don't you think Egypt is sort of the prize here? As Egypt goes, so probably goes the whole Middle East. Egypt's a really good case study. You have a situation <clears throat> where Mubarak was taken down, and not to understand why the people were upset with Mubarak is not to understand Egypt. The days of us being friendly to totalitarian dictators who are friendly to us or behind us because the Arab Spring is real. So when Mubarak falls, uh, the most organized group on the ground was the Brotherhood. They won the election. They started using democracy to create a condition in Egypt that was against what most people want and not what they ran on. So you have a case of where you have a group who won a democratic election and tried to take democracy into an area where the mandate didn't exist. So instead of having another election, you had a coup. This was a coup by any definition. LCC is the most complicated uh, leader we deal with. He is taking the fight to the Sinai, radical groups that could threaten us and our allies. He is destroying the tunnels going into Gaza. And at the same time, he's destroying free media. He's putting all of his opponents in jail. He's on a path to Algeria where you're going to have an internal conflict forever. If I were president of the United States, I would provide aid to Egypt, but I would tie the aid to political reform. I would help their military because they're a bulwark against radical Islam, but I always push them to be more inclusive and have less of a control on society than they do today. So I wouldn't abandon Egypt, but I'd use our influence and our money to try to get LCC in a more sustainable spot, and that is allowing the press to criticize, allowing opposition people to have a say, and truly create representative government and social justice. These heavy-handed tactics that he's employing is going to blow up in his face, and as goes Egypt, I think goes the entire Arab Spring. Yes, sir. Sure. Thank you, Jake. Good to see you again, Senator. John Gizzi from Newsmax. Just as a follow-up question on Egypt, there are many who say that accepting your thesis that Mubarak had to go, the United States should have been prepared for the resulting election. Yes. And in particular, had there been more of an effort to assist, overtly or covertly, General Shafiq, the opponent who lost a very, very close race to Mr. Morsi, the entire history would have been different. And looking ahead, Libya has no government because we had no idea who after Gaddafi. What do you do in situations like that? And I'd like your particular response about the Egypt election and post-Gaddafi Libya. Thank you. 
Well, John, one thing I wouldn't do is pick one candidate over the other. We've tried that in the past. That doesn't work too well. But I would have ensured more assistance to democratic institutions. We had an election in the Gaza Strip. Hamas won. I mean, in, 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 uh, in, in uh, Palestinian held territories. The Bush administration pushed for an election and Hamas won because they were seen as helping people when nobody else did. In Libya, the Islamists got 10% of the vote, but now the whole thing is fractured. I think you make a good point about Egypt. Here's what we can't ever lose sight of. We're still Americans. While he's doing some things I like, he's creating structures inside of Egypt that are unsustainable and on the other side of what I believe America stands for. So I would tire aid to judicial reform. I would tire aid to oppositions having more say. I would tire aid to basically a freer media. Because if we're not for these things, we're on the wrong side of history. And El Sisi is under siege right now. And what he needs is a partner that would push him and also help him. Here's where I think I have something to offer. I've been there enough to know what works and what doesn't. And every time we accept the convenience of trying to keep somebody in power that's friendly to us, but is on the wrong side of what we would accept ourselves and what young people demand. That's a short-sighted strategy. So the next election in Egypt, I hope we would invest more in IRI and NDI and other organizations. And I hope we could get the international community trying to press LCC to be more open and transparent. I'm going to uh, ask the last question. Um, because nobody brought up immigration, uh, and Good. it's an issue I know that Senator Graham has worked on for many, many years. I hate not years. talking about controversial topics. <laughs> <laughs> I want to read you um, comments uh, made by uh, your um, friend, Secretary, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, about um, immigration and the Republicans that she did <clears throat> in an interview with uh, CNN's Brianna Keeler yesterday. They're on a spectrum talking about Republican presidential candidates. Uh, they're on a spectrum of hostility, which I think is really regrettable in a nation of immigrants like ours, all the way to a kind of grudging acceptance, but refusal to go with a pathway to citizenship. So in Hillary Clinton's view, the Republican <coughs> presidential candidates are either are on a spectrum of hostility, ranging all the, or, or grudging acceptance, and none of you believe in a pathway to citizenship. That's one. And two, if you could weigh in on what the guy who's in second place nationally in Iowa and New Hampshire, <laughs> Donald Trump, has, has had to say about immigrants uh, and what you think that's doing to the Republican Party. Well, number one, when Greta Garbo speaks, we all should listen because she doesn't talk a lot. So, uh, you know, getting an interview with Hillary Clinton is, you know, it's like easier to talk to the North Korean guy. So I want to compliment CNN for being able to talk to her. Uh, <laughs> Secretary Clinton, I like her. I actually do. I like her. In 2008, Obama won a big election. I know because I was on the other side and John McCain came up short. So what have I learned? Uh, one, you can be a front runner as John McCain was and like get your lose. And you can be fifth in the four person race and still come back. So the bottom line is in 2009, he had 60 Democratic senators 
and he had a huge majority in the House. And he campaigned in 2012 that if I get to be president of the United States, within my first year we're going to pass comprehensive immigration reform. He didn't do a damn thing. And Hillary Clinton never lifted a finger. I'll talk about our guys in a minute. But I want to remind everybody who cares about immigration reform that Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, and the stimulus went ahead of you. That he had a chance to transform the system. I would have helped him. McCain would have helped him. And he didn't lift a finger, nor did she. So I don't need a lecture from Hillary Clinton about immigration reform. I've been in every gang you can be in in the Senate. And if we had tattoos, I'd have an armful. I don't remember seeing her once. I don't remember seeing her at the table. She never came to any of the meetings I was at. She was a public voice in 2009. I never remember her saying, wait a minute, President Obama, you promised to do immigration reform. Honor your promise. She didn't say a word. Now us. <laughs> okay. My party is in a hole with Hispanics. The first rule of politics when you're in a hole is stop digging. Somebody needs to take a shovel out of Donald Trump's hand. <laughs> Here's the problem. We passed comprehensive bill after comprehensive bill in the Senate, and it goes to the Republican-controlled House, and it dies. That's got to stop. How do you go from 44% of the Hispanic vote down to 27%? You have to work at it. <laughs> and here's the reality. In 1986, our beloved Ronald Reagan gave amnesty to 3 million people, and he didn't follow up. Now we've got 11 million. And if you give amnesty to 11 million, you'll have 20 million if you don't secure your border. I don't need a lecture from Donald Trump or anybody else about border security. Every bill I've ever supported would deport felons on day one. This guy who did the horrific thing in San Francisco, the system is completely broken. I understand it's broken, but let me tell you how you fix it. Stop yelling about it and get Democrats and Republicans to work together. Tell me how you fix the border without dealing with who gets a job because that's why they come. We've got two borders. We've got the Canadian border and we've got the Mexican border. I've never met an illegal Canadian. Maybe there's some out there. But they come to Myrtle Beach, go swimming in March, and go back home. Nobody else wants to swim in Myrtle Beach in March except the Canadians. <laughs> and we're glad to have them. So we've got about 11 million-plus people who live in poor and corrupt countries. They're coming here for a better way of life, but we've got a right to control chaos. So I don't want any more lectures about securing your border because you're not going to get border security completely done until you deal with the 11 million. No Democrat is going to give us all we want on border security, increase legal immigration, and call it a day unless we address the 11 million. I'm not about to give 11 million people legal status and hope Democrats will work with us on the border. So as to Donald Trump, here's the mistake. You're right to, to point out a broken immigration system, but you're wrong to say the following, that of the 11 plus million illegal immigrants, most of them are rapists and drug dealers. Most of them are good, hardworking people cleaning our toilets, picking the, the, the crops that we all enjoy, changing the beds, and working three or four jobs in the shadows to try to keep their family afloat. Most of them have come since 1986, and here's the common scenario. A young woman comes here in 1988 because she can get across the border and she's enjoying a better life because she can make more in one month here than she can make in a year where she comes from. She's got a child. Her and her husband are illegal and they got one child and that child's illegal. They've had two children in the last 30 years. 
both legal. One of them's a Marine. I'm just making this up. I'm going to use Gomez because they call me Lindsey Gomez. And I don't want to dishonor the Gomez name, so I'm proud of that. So here's the facts. That young man who's legal as you or I, his mother's illegal, his father's illegal, his younger brother, is older brother's illegal. He's been to Afghanistan twice, busting his ass as a United States Marine, defending us from radical Islam. He comes home and he says, hey, where's mom? You haven't heard? She's walking back to Mexico. That's self-deportation. Drive them all out. Mitt Romney, to his undying credit, said it was the biggest mistake he made in 2012, and it was. And it takes a big man to admit that. So self-deportation is in our rearview mirror, I hope, as a party, but here's the problem. When Donald Trump says that most of these people are drug dealers and rapists, what you're telling Sergeant Gonzalez, Gomez, I'm sorry, is that his mother, his older brother, his father, in the eyes of at least one Republican are a bunch of bad people. Why would any group vote for a party who embraces that view? I sure as hell wouldn't. And why would any group listen to you econ your economic plan if you're going to deport their grandmother? Felons, you're not welcome. Troublemakers, off you go. As to the 11 million, I'm telling you as publicly as I know how to tell you, the overwhelming majority of you here because you left a bad place to find a better place. You've broken our laws and you need to get right, but I see value in you as a human being. We'll try to find a way to fix this without destroying your family. When I was 21, my mom died. When I was 22, my dad died. My sister was 13. If it wasn't for family, friends, and faith, I would not be sitting here. I am not going to engage in rhetoric or policies to destroy a family that's done nothing more than try to get a better life for my political gain. So Hillary Clinton, you had a chance to push President Obama in 2009 and you were completely AWOL. I don't need a lecture from you about illegal immigration. I don't need a statement from Donald Trump that the border is broken. I know it. And when it comes to casting a shadow over all these people to put them in the group of being rapists and drug dealers. Not only is it wrong, you're dealing, you're digging a bigger hole, and I hope every Republican candidate would say the following. We disagree with Ronald, Donald Trump in this regard, that most of the people here illegally are good, hard-working people. And if we're not willing to say that as a party, we're going to lose in 2016. Our thanks to Senator Lindsey Graham for very candid remarks. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain seated as the senator exits the room.